Chapter Five of An Outback Marriage by Andrew Barton Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Arrowhead Aussie. Chapter Five: The Coming of the Heiress. The spring, the glorious hill country spring, was down on Curryong. All the flats along Kylie's River were knee deep in green grass. The wattle trees were out in golden bloom and the snow-water from the mountains set the river running white with foam, fighting its way over bars of granite into big pools where the platypus dived, and the wild ducks, busy with the cares of nesting, just settled occasionally to snatch a hasty meal, and then hurried off with a whistle of strong wings back to their little ones. The breeze brought down from the hills a scent of grass and bush-flowers. There was life and movement everywhere, the little foals raced and played all day in the sunshine round their big sleepy mothers. The cattle bellowed to each other from hill to hill. Even those miserable brutes, the sheep, frisked in an ungainly way when anything startled them. At all the little mountain farms and holdings, young Doyles and Donohoes were catching their horses, lean after the winter's starvation, and loading the pack-saddles for their five months' trip out to the borders of Queensland, from shearing-shed to shearing-shed. A couple of months before they started, they would write to the squatters for whom they had worked on previous shearings, such quaint, ill-spelled letters, asking that a pen might be kept for them. Great shearers they were, too, for the mountain air bred hardy men, and while they were at it they worked feverishly, bending themselves nearly double over the sheep and making the shears fly till the sweat ran down their foreheads and dripped on the ground. And they peeled the yellow wool off sheep after sheep as an expert cook peels an apple. In the settled districts, such as Curryong, where the flocks were small, they were made to shear carefully. But away on the Queensland side, on a station with 200,000 sheep to get through, they rushed the wool off savagely. Here was a poor specimen of the clan who couldn't shear his hundred and twenty sheep between bell and bell, and the price was a pound a hundred, with plenty of stations wanting shearers, so they made good checks in those days. One glorious spring morning, Hugh Gordon was sitting in his office. Every squatter and station manager has an office, waiting with considerable impatience the coming of the weekly mail. The office looked like a blend of stationer's shop, tobacconist's store, and saddlery warehouse. A row of pigeonholes along the walls was filled with letters and papers. The rafters were hung with saddles and harness. A tobacco cutter and a jar of tobacco stood on the table, side by side with some formidable-looking knives used for cutting the sheep's feet when they became diseased. Whips and guns stood in every corner. Nails and saws filled up a lot of boxes on the table, and a few samples of wool hung from a rope that was stretched across the room. The mantelpiece was occupied by bottles of horse medicine and boxes of cartridges. An elderly white cockatoo, chained by the leg to a galvanized iron perch, sunned himself by the door, and at intervals gave an exhibition of his latest accomplishment, in which he imitated the yowl of a trodden-on cat much better than the cat could have done it himself. The air was heavy with scent. All round the great quadrangle of the house acacia trees were in bloom, and the bees were working busily among the mignonette and roses in front of the office door. Hugh Gordon was a lithe, wiry young Australian, with intensely sunburnt face and hands, and a drooping black moustache, a man with a healthy, breezy outdoor appearance, but the face of an artist, a dreamer, and a thinker, rather than that of a practical man. His brother Charlie and he 
though very much alike in face, were quite different types of manhood. Charlie, from his earliest school days, had never read a book except under compulsion, had never stayed indoors when he could possibly get out, had never obeyed an unwelcome order when by force or fraud he could avoid doing so, and had never written a letter in his life when a telegram would do. He took the world as it came, having no particular amount of imagination, and never worried himself. Hugh, on the other hand, was inclined to meet trouble halfway, and to make troubles where none existed, which is the worst misfortune that a man can be afflicted with. Hugh walked to the door and gazed out over the garden and homestead, down the long stretch of green paddocks where fat cattle were standing under the trees, too well fed to bother themselves with looking for grass. He looked beyond all this to the long, drab-coloured stretch of road that led to Kiley's, watching for the mail-boy's arrival. The mail was late, for the melting snow had flooded the mountain creeks, and Hugh knew it was quite likely that little Patsy Donohoe, the mail-boy, had been blocked at Donohoe's hotel for two days, unable to cross Kiley's River. This had happened often, and on various occasions, when Patsy had crossed, he, pony and all, had been swept down quite a quarter of a mile in the ice-cold water before they could reach land. But that was an ordinary matter in the spring, and it was a point of honour with Patsy and all his breed not to let the elements beat them in carrying out the mail contract, which they tendered for every year, and in which no outsider would have dared to compete. At last Hugh's vigil was rewarded by the appearance of a small and wild-looking boy mounted on a large and wild-looking horse. The boy was about twelve years of age, and had just ridden a half-broken horse a forty-mile journey, for of such is the youth of Australia. Patsy was wet and dirty, and the big leather mailbag that he handed over had evidently been under water. "'We had to swim, Mr. Hugh,' the boy said triumphantly. "'And this great clumsy cow,' the child referred to his horse, "'he reared over on me in the water. Twist, but I stuck to him, my oath.' Hugh laughed. I expect Kylie's River will get you yet, Patsy, he said. Go in now to the kitchen and get dry by the fire. I'll lend you a horse to get back on tomorrow. You can camp here till then. There's no hurry back. The boy let his horse go loose, dismissing it with a parting whack on the rump with the bridle, and swaggered inside, carrying his saddle, to show his wet clothes and recount his deeds to the admiring cook. Patsy was not one to hide his light under a bushel. Hugh carried the bag into the office and shook out the letters and papers on the table. Everything was permeated with a smell of wet leather, and some of the newspapers were rather pulpy. After sending out everybody else's mail, he turned to examine his own. Out of the mass of letters, agents, circulars, notices of sheep for sale, catalogues of city firms, and circulars from pastoral societies, he picked a letter addressed to himself in the scrawling fist of William Grant. He opened it, expecting to find in it the usual combination service of things in general, but as he read on, a vivid surprise spread over his face. Leaving the other letters and papers unopened, he walked to the door and looked out into the courtyard, where Stuffer, the youngest of his nephews, who was too small to be allowed to join in the field sports of the others, was playing at being a railway train. He had travelled in a train once and now passed Hugh's door under easy steam working his arms and legs like piston-rods, and giving piercing imitations of a steam-whistle at intervals. "'Stuffer,' said Hugh, "'do you know where your grandmother is?' "'No,' said the stuffer laconically. "'I don't.' "'Choo-choo-choo! We are!' "'Well, look here,' said Hugh. "'You just railway train yourself round the house till you find her, 
and let me know where she is. I want to see her. Off you go now. The stuffer steamed himself out with the action of an engine drawing a long train of cars, and disappeared round the corner of the house. Before long he was back, drew himself up alongside an imaginary platform, intimated that his grandmother was in the veranda, and then proceeded to let the steam hiss out of his safety valve. Hugh walked across the quadrangle, under the acacia tree, heavy with blossoms, in which a myriad bees were droning at their work, and through the house, on to the front veranda, which looked over the wide sweep of River Flat. Here he found his mother and Miss Harriet, the governess, peeling apples for dumplings. Great, rosy-cheeked, solid-fleshed apples that the hill country turns out in perfection. The old lady was slight in figure with a refined face and a carriage erect in spite of her years. Miss Harriet was of a languid Spanish type, with black eyes and strongly marked eyebrows. She had a petite but well-rounded figure, with curiously small hands and feet. Though only about twenty-four years of age, she had the sedate and unemotional look that one sees in doctors and nurses, people who have looked on death and birth and sorrow and affliction. For Ellen Harriet had done her three years' course as a nurse. She had a natural faculty for the business, and was in great request among the wild folk of the mountains, who looked upon her, and perhaps rightly, as quite equal to the Tarong doctor in any emergency. She knew them all, for she had lived nearly all her life at Kuryong. When the family moved there from the back country, a tutor was needed for the boys, and an old broken-down gentleman accepted the billet at low pay, on condition that he was allowed to bring his little daughter with him. When he died, the daughter stayed on, and was made governess to the new generation of young folk. She was a queer, self-contained girl, saying little, and as Hugh walked in, she looked up at him and wondered what new trouble was bringing him to his mother with an open letter in his hand. Mother, said Hugh, I have a most extraordinary letter. From Mr. Grant, said the old lady. What does he say? She saw by her son's face there was something more than usual in the wind, but one who had lived her life from fortune to poverty through strife and trial was prepared to take things much more easily than Hugh. Is it anything very serious? His daughter's coming out to live here. What? Yes, here's the letter. It only came this morning. Patsy was late. The river is up. I'll read it to you. Seating himself at the table, Hugh spread out the letter and read it. Dear Gordon, the last lot of weathers, though they topped the market, only realized ten shillings. I think you would show better judgment in keeping these sheep back a little. Don't rely upon Saturn's advice. He is generally wrong, and is always most wrong when he is most sure he's right. My daughter has arrived from England, and will at once go up to the station. I have written to your mother on the subject. My daughter will represent me in everything, so I wish her to learn a little about stations. Send to meet her at the train on Wednesday next. Yours truly, W. G. Grant. Wednesday next, said Hugh. That letter is three days delayed. Patsy couldn't cross the river. She'll be there before we can possibly get down. If no one meets her, I wonder if she'll have pluck enough to get into the coach and come on to the Donohoe's. I don't envy her the trip if she does, said Miss Harriet. The coach drive over those roads will seem awful to an English girl. I'll have to go down at once anyhow, said Hugh, and meet her on the road somewhere. If she's at the railway, I can get there in two days. Have you a letter, mother? Yes, said the old lady, but I won't show it to you now. You shall see it some other time. Well, I'll set about making a start, said Hugh. What trap had I better take? 
"'You'd better take the big wagonette,' said the old lady in a soft voice. "'A young girl just out from England is sure to have a great deal of luggage, you know. "'I wonder if she's anything like Mr. Grant. "'I hope her temper is a little bit better.' "'You'd better come down with me, Miss Harriet, to meet her,' said Hugh. "'I don't suppose your luggage would be a load there and back anyhow.' "'What about crossing the river?' said the old lady. "'Oh, we'll get across somehow,' said Hugh. "'Will you come?' "'I think I'll wait,' said the young lady meditatively. She'll be tired from travelling and looking after her luggage, and she had better meet the family one at a time. You go and meet her, and your mother and I will get her room ready. Does the letter say any more about her? No, that's all, said Hugh. Well, I'll send the boy to run in the horses. I'll take four horses in the big wagonette. I expect she'll be waiting at Donahoe's, that is, if she left the railway station in the coach. If she is at Donahoe's, I'll be back before dark. With this he went back to the office, and his mother and Miss Harriet went their separate ways to prepare for the comfort of the heiress. To Ellen Harriet the arrival was a new excitement, a change in the monotony of bush life, but to the old lady and Hugh it meant a great deal more. It meant that they would be no longer master and mistress of the big station on which they had lived so long, and which was now so much under their control that it seemed almost like their own. Everything depended on what the girl was like. They had never seen a photograph of her, and awaited her coming in a state of nervous expectancy. All over the district they had been practically considered owners of the big station. Hugh had taken on and dismissed employees at his will, had controlled the buying and selling of thousands of sheep and cattle, and now this strange girl was to come in with absolute power over them. They would be servants and dependents on the station which had once belonged to them. After Hugh had gone, the old lady sat back in her armchair and read over again her letter from Mr. Grant, and lest it should be thought that the gentleman had only one side to his character, it is as well for the reader to know what was in the letter. It ran as follows. Dear Mrs. Gordon, I am writing to you about a most important matter. Colonel Selwyn is dead, and my daughter has come out from England. I don't know anyone to take charge of her except yourself. I am an old man now, and set in my ways, and this girl is really all I have to live for. Looking back on my life, I see where I have been a fool, and perhaps the good fortune that has followed me has been more luck than anything else. Your husband was a smarter man than I am, and he came to grief, though I will say that I always warned him against that western place. Do you remember the old days when we had the two little homesteads, and I used to ride down from the outstation of a Saturday and spend Sunday with you and Andrew, and talk over the fortunes we were going to make. If I had met a woman like you in those days, I might have been a better man. As it was, I made a fool of myself, but that's all past praying for. Now about my girl. If you will take her, and make her as good a woman as yourself, or as near it as you can, you will earn my undying thanks. As to money matters, when I die she will of course have a great deal of money, so that it is, well, she should begin now to learn how to use it. I have therefore given her full power to draw all money that may be required. I may tell you that I intend to leave your boys enough to start them in life, and they will have a first-class chance to get on. I am sending Charlie out to the West to take over a block which those fools, Sutton and Company, got me to advance money on, and on which the man cannot pay his interest. He will be away for some time. Meanwhile, dear Mrs. Gordon, for the sake of old times, do what you can for the girl. I expect she has been brought up with English ideas. I can't get her to say much to me, which I dare say is my own fault, 
after she has been with you for a bit, I will come up and stay for a time at the station. Yours very truly, W.G. Grant. Reading this letter called back the whole panorama of the past, the old days when she and her husband were struggling in the rough, hard pioneering life, and the blacks were thick round the station, the birth of her children and the ups and downs of her husband's fortunes, then the burial of her husband out on the sandhills, and her flight to this haven of rest at Curryong. Though she had lost interest in things for herself, she felt keenly for her children, and was sick at heart when she thought what this girl, who was to wield such power over them, might turn out to be. But she hoped that Grant's daughter, whatever else she might be, would at any rate be a genuine, straightforward girl, and filled with this hope she sat down to answer him. Dear Mr. Grant, she wrote, I have received your letter. Hugh has gone down to meet your daughter, but the mails were delayed owing to the river being up, and he may not get to the railway station as soon as she arrives. I will do what I can for her, and I thank you for what you say you will do for my boys. I will let you know the moment she arrives. I wish you would come up and live on the station for a time. It would be better for you than life in the club without a friend to care for you. If ever you feel inclined to stay here for a time, I hope you will at once let me know. With thanks and best wishes, yours truly, Annette Gordon. End of chapter 5